Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thanks again, Amanda. It's good to be here with you. My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, if you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter. We're going to jump into the text. The text is going to start us off today. It is going to require a little bit of a little bit of teaching. There's a couple weird areas in this passage I'd like to walk through a little bit, but it is going to eventually show us Jesus in a, in a crisp, clear way where we can see him, um, we can adore him, and we can walk in the light of the great news that he brings in the gospel. But we're in 1 Peter 3, really cool passage. We're going to start in verse 8, picking up where we left off last week. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as, <clears throat> as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay. You know, you know, while I read this, it reminded me of back in the late 1990s, maybe early 2000s, it was my very first time to ever be canceled, <laughs> which we didn't even use that word back then. I was a young, young, young campus minister um, at a Texas university, and I was occasionally brought into different campuses to speak. I wasn't an itinerant guy, but I would sub in a lot. And I was invited to come into this university, who I will not name, our legal department said I should not. <laughs> but on the way, I realized that there was a meeting that was going to happen. Some of you have heard the story. A meeting that was going to happen one hour before I was supposed to preach. And in this meeting, this meeting was comprised of those who were in the occult, witches and warlocks, and these were people who would get together and do what's called astral projection, um, where they would try to communicate with demon mediums and carry a message to the rest of the group, right? 
So I heard about this meeting and I thought, I have enough time to go in and crash this meeting and just see what it's all about. Now usually when I would travel to different universities, I would have somebody with me, a new student, and there was a kid that I had led to the Lord the previous year, and he also was in the occult whenever God changed his life. Also was a witch, and he was a student leader in our local, our, our local campus, their student organization for witches and warlocks. He was like a pretty big deal, I guess. So he was in the car with me, and I said, hey, let's go in. Let's crash this thing. They don't know who we are. And so we walked. That was before I looked as old like I do now. I still could pass as a college student. So we went into this meeting, and it was about as eerie and as creepy as you, as you would imagine it would be. And they did, I guess, commune with demons in that room. And then when it was all over, they went around in a circle, and they gave the message to the room of what the spirits told them. And when it came to me, I said, I have a message from a spirit as well, and it's a message for you, and I preached the gospel. I said it was the Holy Spirit, gave the story of what Jesus has done. They flipped out, and they yelled at me, and they kicked me out. A lot of reviling, a lot of mockery, a lot of slander before I could even get to the door, but I left my buddy there. They didn't know we were together. And so whenever I left, they said, we need to find out where that guy lives because we're going to cast a spell on his family and on his house. If you want to know more about that, go to the class that was talked about, <laughs> the spiritual warfare class. I'm not going to get into it here. But my friend said, you know what, I hate it that he said that. And they said, yeah, we do too. He said, he said the same thing to me a year ago. And this is what the Lord has done in my life. So he stands up and he starts preaching the gospel, shuts the whole meeting down, right? Because some of them are foaming at the mouth. Some of them ended up going to the campus ministry meeting right after that with him, by the way. But what we did not know is there was a reporter in there that was undercover for the student newspaper, and they wrote the whole thing down, put it in the newspaper, and I got a phone call from the administration the next week. And what they wanted was for me to apologize to this group of witches and warlocks for what I had done. Now listen, in all honesty, I didn't do everything great, okay? I was young, I was just looking to flip stuff over. It's not like I had a heart for witches or anything like that. I just thought it'd be kind of fun and cool, and that's how I handled it, right? So, but at the time I said, no, I'm not going to apologize. I said, well, then listen, you can never come to this campus again. You were banned from this campus, right? And then there was more mockery and slander. Now, I tell all that story to say my suffering for being reviled and slandered in that moment was really no suffering at all, right? A little bit of a trophy, to be honest with you, a badge even. I mean, I'm never going to go back to that school anyway, Football stinks, hard to find a parking spot. There's like 250 other schools. Why would I go back to that school? I'm not going to. But what if that happened to me today, here, in this city, my, my, my town? What if it happened with those who are close to me, those who I do life with? Well, that's a little bit different. That's a different kind of suffering altogether. You see, the closer you get into proximity with somebody, the, the more the rejection, the more the reviling, the more that suffering kind of stings. This is why Jesus says in Luke 12, and don't turn there, stay where you are, but he just basically says, you think I come to bring peace. But it's, there's going to be division brought as well between mother and daughter and daughter and mother and between son and father and father and son. There's going to, there's going to be turbulence with your relationships. You're going to be canceled, in other words. No one wants to be reviled when it's close to home. Now, reviled's not a word that we really use anymore, right? I mean, it's just criticism with harsh insults. If you've been mocked, if you've been accused of something you didn't do, maybe you did something that was righteous and you were labeled for it, 
Maybe you've been canceled. If this has happened to you, you've been reviled. That's what the Bible would call it. And what Peter's going to do today is he's going to shift gears from the last few weeks on how we submit to each other as exiles to how we suffer together as exiles. And, and you can tell just in the texture of this passage, he's talking about slander and being reviled and being mocked. It's the verbal blows that we'll take. And this is important for us when it comes to character assassination and slander and insults, how you handle it. How you suffer in this is going to tell volumes on how you put your hope, where you invest your hope, where you anchor your hope. And as we know, for the exile, our hopes are not in this world. Now, we, we spent some time in 2017, not a few weeks, going through a series on suffering. That's all we talked about. And what we learned about, and you can always go back and look at it on your own, but what we learned is that suffering comes and goes for various reasons, Right? Sometimes there's going to be suffering because we're dumb and we do dumb things. Right? We suffer from that. Sometimes we suffer because nature is broken, like a virus or a tornado. Sometimes we suffer because people are broken. And today we're going to see sometimes it comes by the hands of others who revile us and slander us, or maybe worse, and especially when we are righteous or doing something righteously. And when we absorb these verbal blows, we, we typically have a reflex, don't we? And Peter knows that. That's why he says, hey, don't return evil for evil. Don't revile where you've been reviled. Why does he say that? Because he knows that's what, that's what I want to do. We, 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 it's fight or flight. We either run away from those who are canceling us or we fire back. And that's why he's saying this. But some people, in the shape of Jesus, are able to, by the power of Jesus' spirit, he says here, grace people with a blessing. They're able to bless when reviled, and therefore they're ministering the gospel. They take this living hell of being reviled, and they turn it into a ministry. And that's what Peter is saying to us today. Turn your suffering into ministry. Take your nightmarish wounds from what people have said to you, how they've taken your narrative and turned it upside down, how they've canceled you and turned it into a story of hope that can't be ignored. You see, we know that this ministry that Peter is talking about is towards those who are doing the reviling because he uses the word defense. Be prepared to give a defense. Be ready to give a defense. That's literally pulled out of what their forensic language, dealing with the courtroom. It means to reply to an accusation. Right? Now, now, Paul was in this place all the time be, between himself and authorities. He was always having to give a defense, and Peter would as well, even to his own death. He would have to give a defense. In fact, we see this in Luke 12. This is another part of the middle of Luke where Jesus is speaking to these exact situations, this exact situation. And he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Same exact word. Defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You see, God steps in to do the heavy lifting in heavy moments. He steps in to do it. His spirit empowers us to say things that we, just, we didn't prepare for, but they had impact. They left a mark, which is why we see Paul and Peter saying things that sound like, do your worst. I'm just going to keep obeying God. The worst you could do is kill me. You can't destroy me. I fear God. I don't fear man. That was them talking 
to the authorities that were accusing, but it was something more than them talking at the same time. It's the Spirit of God that Jesus would tell them would come. That's why Paul would say later on in his letter to the Romans, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? You see the psalmist, Psalm 56, say the same thing. What can flesh do to me? You see, their defense was with gentleness and it was with respect. And that gentleness and the respect that they carried themselves with when they were being reviled, it was kind of like dragging a highlighter across their testimony. It wasn't just word deep. It mattered. You couldn't ignore it. Couldn't run away from it. Man, listen, their defense is amazing when you read about it in the book of Acts. I imagine, I haven't, I, I mean, we can all imagine them being struck in the mouth, punched in the gut, and then returning with a blessing. Being stuffed in a dungeon, but not reviling in return. I can imagine prison guards saying, you don't do the same thing that everybody else does when they're in the same situation. You just look a little different. You sound a little different. This is empowering to a testimony. I'm saying all of this because a lot of us have walked in here under a cloud of insult, a false narrative about you, maybe some character assassination, maybe you've been reviled, capital R, maybe it's from family, maybe it's at work, maybe this is happening to you, and you just don't feel like being gentle and respectful. You want to revile where you've been reviled, and I get that. So I'd like to look at a couple things that we do as we diagnose what we do when we've been slandered have taken the verbal blows because we're tempted to do some things. And he actually addresses them in this passage. It's very helpful for us. First is that we fear man more than we fear God. We fear man more than we fear God. We're convinced that those who revile us can also ruin us. We don't know what to do. And when we fear mankind, we certainly cannot bless mankind. You can't do it. You can't be courageous in ministry in front of those that you fear will reject you. You can't do them both. I mean, I have this image of Peter in a courtyard and a young servant girl gets him on his heels to the place where he is reviling her back for bringing an accusation against him. He is cratering under this fear of man, this fear of being rejected around people who he probably didn't even know. Fast forward to a different Peter where he's not in a courtyard, but he's in a high court. And he's speaking to an authority who can do something, and he's saying, we must obey God over man. How did he get from A to B? How did Peter change? Peter lost the fear of man, and he lost it by gaining a fear of the Lord. He lost the fear of man by gaining a fear of the Lord. Listen, this is so important for us today because the Western church, we're in this weird, awkward stage where being reviled as a Christian is much more a reality than it was a decade or two or three ago. I mean, the fear of rejection is very real. It's a reality. 20, 30 years ago, you could have been, I mean, as a Christian, I'll just say it this way, you could be a Christian without being canceled for your beliefs 20 or 30 years ago. I don't see how you can go forward in future without being canceled if you're a disciple of Christ, believing in what is taught in the Bible, holding to the gospel. I mean, just the last two weeks from this stage alone, between Jake and myself, preaching what the word says about gender roles, equality, deference, submission. Half of America would revile us if they heard that. Half, statistically. Half of America would revile you if you believe it, if you walk around and hold it. 
And reviling is public sport today. Social media happens to be the arena, but the whole world's watching. So when this happens to you, you need to know it's a real suffering. It's a real suffering. And you'll be tempted to revile in return or capitulate. Both don't require any courage, though, right? If you suffer when you're reviled, by the way, it doesn't mean you're a weak Christian. It means that you value belonging. You hate rejection. You want to be accepted. You want to be loved. Listen, you weren't created to be bulletproof. You weren't created to not care what people think and just to have it be water off a duck's back every time anyone tried to cancel you. Being reviled hurts because it's rejection. And we were made to despise rejection. You see, there's a difference between caring what people think about you and demanding and depending on what people think about you, right? There's a, there's a difference between hoping that people accept you and needing people to accept you. There's a difference. When you have to have the acceptance of the masses, that is a fear of man that will render you useless for ministry. Totally useless. I mean, Peter before a young servant girl and the Peter before the high authorities in the court, two, two different men, two totally different men. One feared man, the other one feared the Lord. But we also do something else. It's not just that we fear man over God. We also lose our joy. This is another way that you can see it in your own life. We think joy is something that happens after suffering has ended, right? That in order to pick up joy, you have to put suffering down. And and listen, we did a whole series on this, like I said, a couple years ago. But suffering, we think, is the opposite of blessing. But that's not how Christ teaches it in the Bible. Suffering isn't the opposite of blessing. Jesus himself says you can hold both at the same time. In fact, he says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is valuable for us because, listen, if you don't comprehend God's goodness in the midst of your suffering on this level, you're never going to have joy. Your hope will be gone. You'll be looking at it as an atheist with atheistic strategies, with atheistic solutions. We'd basically be letting the world's view of suffering build our view of God rather than our view of God reformat how we look at suffering. You just need to know that blessing is not waiting for you on the backside of suffering. Blessing is found in the belly of suffering. That's what Christ is saying here. Now, there's a reason for this. Because it can sound good and be hard to apply. This is how this works. When people revile you for being righteous, you are occupying a treasured spot with the co-heirs of Christ, the martyrs, the prophets who have gone before you. You're, You're occupying some sacred space with the brothers and the sisters of Jesus as he goes before us. When you feel the strain and the pain of being slandered and mocked and your, your character is being assassinated right before your own eyes, you're sharing a moment with Jesus who walked on the same path. And you're growing a relationship with Jesus in a way that you were not able to before. Right? You couldn't, you couldn't build this kind of intimacy with Jesus without this suffering. You're sharing his pain. It's, it's the kind of sharing where Jesus would look at you and say, yeah, I know it stinks. I know it stinks. You want to set the record straight? 
you hate what's happened to your reputation. You'd like your reputation back. They don't get you. They misheard you. They don't understand you. I understand that. Jesus would communicate that life is easier before being canceled. It stinks. You see, this, there's a blessing when we find Jesus in this place of wounding. There's a blessing. You know what it is? We get more of him. We get more God. In the same way that you get more of your friends and more of your spouse whenever you walk through something tragic with them. When you walk through the valley with people that you love deeply and that love you deeply, you come out of that with a stronger, more intimate bond. I mean, if you take your marriage or you take your friendships and you pull all the suffering out of it, you have a shell of what you have now. That's what he's saying here. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. That means satisfied. I am satisfied. I am at peace. I have joy with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying a lot of things right there, but one thing he's definitely saying is that suffering and blessing aren't opposites. They're found together. They're found together. And on top of this, the gospel story is a story of collaborating suffering and blessing. Cooperating together, right? So gospel-centered living would be one where suffering and blessing also walk alongside each other, not in opposite directions. This is why he says in 1 Peter, this is why in our passage today, he says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, question. What kind of story would the gospel be if we removed all the suffering from it? Think about that for a moment. How would it change the story? No one makes fun of Jesus' upbringing anymore. He doesn't suffer the blows and the jabs verbally. He's not beaten. He's not arrested. Over 21 laws were broken just as he was, as he was persecuted in their, in their kangaroo court. That wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have been crucified. There wouldn't be any blood on the cross. There wouldn't have been any tears in the garden. If you take all of the suffering out of the gospel story, what are you left with? You're left for a people who are in really big trouble because justice wouldn't have been held. It would be a story where the crimes of mankind have no penalties. And if the crimes of mankind have no penalties, then justice doesn't exist. And that means that we are dead where we stand forever. For justice to be held high, guilt would have to be recognized Penalties would have to be given. Suffering would have to be felt. His suffering, however, brought blessing to you and me. His death meant our life. His suffering carried us to the place of joy and hope in Jesus. And part of Jesus' suffering was being canceled, right? Being reviled. And I think when we read in the Gospels, him being rejected, I think maybe you're like me, we imagine him like not suffering from that. Like not caring, his head held high, his chest out, like he's bulletproof. Like it didn't matter that those he's poured his life into rejected him, that his family rejects him, that his best friends reject him, that all of society, the Jews who were supposed to love him rejected him. We think that it just doesn't matter, like there was no suffering there. Friends, there was. He suffered. That was a pain. He felt the rejection. He absorbed the verbal insults. And instead of reviling in return, he gave blessing. 
We are called to walk in the same shape, on the same path, in the same way as wounded people, yet ministering the gospel at the same time. And it's evangelistic when we do this. I mean, that's how our gentle suffering carries other people to God. We see him as so stoic, but that's not always the truth. Listen, it's the testimony when we suffer and we're handling ourselves with respect and we're handling ourselves with gentleness with other people when we are responding differently than what maybe they were expecting. They can't argue with it. It's a gentle ministry. It can't be ignored. It can't be discounted. When is the last time someone asked you why you were so content given all that's happening to you? When's the last time somebody said, man, you sure aren't responding like I thought you would respond or like I would respond or, hey, don't you hear what they're saying about you? Or how, man, with all this going on in your family right now, look at how you're handling that. When's the last time somebody said that to you? How differently is your life when you're reviled, honestly? And when you're canceled, how will you behave? This is good evangelism. It's good evangelism. But then we get to this weird place in the passage. What on earth does any of this have to do with Jesus, Noah, and the spirits in prison? <laughs> right? Some of you are like, you better not skip that. You better say something about that, right? It's an odd passage. Let's look at 1 Peter 3.19. I'm going to just reprise it real quick for you. He says, in which Jesus, and Jesus, he in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, it's odd. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It's probably the best way to go about this. Jesus did not go to hell to brag in front of demons. I've heard that taught a couple times. It's not what he's talking about right here, right? He also did not go to hell prison. He did not go to help to, to, to preach to people that were alive in Noah's day. And for some reason, they fell in some loophole that they didn't, their, their reality wasn't everybody else's reality. That's also not what is happening right here. What is happening is Noah, who built an ark, was reviled. Okay, that's why it's in this passage. He was reviled, and yet he had the spirit of Jesus as he proclaimed righteousness and repentance and gave a defense for the hope that he had in God. And again, he did all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' spirit in him. Right? And we know that this happened. We saw a few weeks ago that when prophets and some of the patriarchs would preach, that it would be spirit-empowered, and they wouldn't know exactly the full depths of the gospel. They knew it probably wasn't for them. They were looking and hoping to see what it was, but they knew it would be for you and me. It says this in 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, like Noah, was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, God waited for patience with the villains that flanked Noah and his family. He waited with patience. What was God waiting for? Their repentance and change. You see, Noah preached repentance and righteousness to a, a difficult people, and he did so by the spirit of Jesus, and nothing happened. And they made fun of him while he made an ark, because who wouldn't? And he'd preach and give the reason for the hope that he has, and still nothing. And he would preach again, and then still nothing. And so then one day, water would come and destroy creation, the same water that would pick the ark up and carry 
carry God's people above destruction. See, the story of the ark is a salvation story. It, it's like a proto-gospel in some ways. It's a salvation story. Later we would see something very similar repeated when God would carry his people through the destruction of the Red Sea. Water delivers some from destruction. That's the motif we see. We see it again in baptism, right? Baptism would be probably the final echo of this story. Water is emblematic for destruction, which is why whenever you typically see pastors baptize somebody, they say into death whenever they're plunking the person and whenever they pull them right back up out of the water and into new life, right? Because that is a picture of being carried above the destruction of the water as we saw in the days of Noah, as we see in the Red Sea. And what he's saying here is be careful. The water itself is doing nothing. Being immersed doesn't save you like it would wash something off of your body. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of the reality that we are saved from the overwhelming destruction of death. And by the way... I've had a few of you, not, not one or two, I've had a few of you signal that you'd like to be baptized. In the year of COVID, I expected many things. I did not expect that. This is awesome, and I'm super excited about that, and I can't wait to do it. I want you to know if that's you, it's a memorial that your conscience is clear. It's a sign of something God has already done. Coming up through the waters is symbolic of leaving death and entering new life. And listen, just on, the, on an aside, some of you, maybe you went through something like this when you were young, it, baptism. And you've always wondered if it took, mattered, or maybe you just got wet. You're not quite sure really what happened. I mean, you kind of believed in Jesus, but your belief in Jesus matured, I guess. Your, your relationship got deeper, and you don't know how to go back and look at that old baptism. Did it matter? Do I need to do it again? How often do I keep doing it? Some of you, you grew up in, in denominations where you were sprinkled as a child and did not have a functioning faith and trust in the gospel and the Jesus of our gospel. And you're wondering, what do I do with that? These are all good questions, right? I want you to know it's not salvific. There's nothing magical about that water. We pull it straight out of the tap. Oftentimes it stays cold too, right? Some of you are like, man, it was too cold. It's cold. But it is a beautiful act of obedience, before a watching world, before brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a way of saying, I'm joining the family. It is, it is a sign to, to all the watching world who might not even love Jesus, to the demons who hate you, to the angels who long to look into the story of the gospel, to all of creation. It's a beautiful thing. Listen, if you want to know more about that, by the way, again, this is not off, this is not on my script, but... If you want to know about being baptized, let us know. If you have questions, let us know. We'd love to talk that through with you. You could text us on our text line. I don't know how easy it is to pull that up and throw it up there. It might not be easy at all. Or you could just come up and ask me or ask somebody else. Or you can email us. Just text baptism. Or we'll figure it out what you mean. And then we'll call you and we'll have a conversation with you about it. <laughs> but why bring all of this up here in this passage? This passage about returning blessing instead of be reviling people who have reviled you, it seems like it doesn't fit. It seems like he lost his train of thought for a moment, right? Except for he didn't. 
we find ourselves in the same exact shoes as Noah, as exiles. Noah and his family were a righteous minority in the place of hostility. And he would have to witness boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' spirit. We're standing on similar ground. Exiles in a culture that is ready to cancel and revile you quickly. And this is something that requires a lot of courage and boldness to minister as we give a defense for the hope that we have. Noah exercised courage as he pleaded for people to repent. Noah realized judgment was hanging like a cloud. Noah was empowered and preached by the power of Jesus. The same spirit that we have in us is God's people. And he didn't even have the whole gospel like. But here you and I are today in an age of being canceled. In 2021, with the same spirit of Jesus in us, that we would give a rapid defense in gentleness and with respect towards those who accuse us, cancel us, blow a narrative way out of proportion for our lives, revile us in every which way we can live differently. Again, when is the last time someone asked you why you were so different giving all of the blows you're taking? How different is your life? Can you repent for letting people slander, cave you in, where you find yourself like Peter before that serving girl. Can you do that? These are things for us to think about as we sing and as we take communion. But listen, if you're here and you're far from Jesus or you're watching today and you're far from Jesus, he's talking about this thing called hope. Right? And your hopes are attached to this world. Just like mine were. Before, before Jesus, my hopes were in this world. A hope is a little bit different than faith and the fact that faith is trusting in something to be true, Right? But hope is having faith for something in the future, something that's ahead of us. So a hope is more of a longing of a future reality. So if you are far from Christ, the most you could hope for is that something in the future will happen that will be good for you, that will bring heaven to your situation in this life of hell, making something true and good for you today. But hope for the Christian is that heaven is already yours. Hope for the Christian is that you belong to God and he belongs to you and you need nothing. All the work is finished Listen, you were created to crave belonging. You were created to flee from rejection. And you've wondered if that happens here. But can I give you a warning if this is you? Christianity is a life of being reviled by this world. It's a life of being reviled. But it's a life of being accepted by the next. And I'm talking about reviled by even your closest relationships. There is hope. It's just not in this world. This is not in this world. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to finish with the very last verse in our passage. And that is the 22nd verse. And he says, Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The most reviled man in human history is at God's right hand as we speak right now today. And all is subject to him. All authority has been given to him. And one day his reviled children will join him again and we will bask in his glory. We will banquet. We will party. We will rest. Until then we place our hope in him. And we express our suffering. We express our suffering with a joy 
and a hope. And we are rapid to give a defense for those things. Our God is good. Listen, what I'd love to do as we transition into our musical worship is take communion with you. If you didn't get one of these and you would like to take communion, Chaz will bring them in here in a minute and he will give you one of these little rip and sip cups. And so, listen, if, you're, if you are not a Christian or you're just checking things out, you're not even quite sure what to make of all of this, don't worry about this. This is like baptism. This is not magical. But like baptism, it's important. And it does have spiritual and sacred weight to it. Okay? So raise your hand if you'd like one of these. If you're, you don't have to be a part of Legacy to take this, but we just would ask that you would be a believer to take this. So if you're visiting from another church, feel free. I think there's some people over here. Um, You know, when COVID first started, I hated having to do this every week. I just kind of like the bowls and the bread being in the back and you being able to do it with your family. I got to say, it's grown on me, though, to use this as a moment to celebrate what God has done, to pray with you. So let me pray and lead us in this moment. Father, I thank you for being so good and so kind to us that you did not revile us in return as we reviled you. As we cast our rebellion against you, as we slandered you, as the blood is clearly on our hands, you did not return fire. But you blessed us. Your suffering meant our blessing. We broke your body, which is what this bread stands for. We broke your body. And as we broke it, you handled us with respect and gentleness. You handled us with kindness and thoughtfulness. So, Lord, we take this bread in remembrance of what you've done. And, Lord, we know that this juice is just juice. It's not magical juice. But it is emblematic of the blood that was spilt from a perfect king. Lord, when we take this, we know that it is representative of a body that felt rejection. You were reviled. Your character was assassinated. You were canceled quickly by those who were close to you. You were mocked. You were slandered. There was worse. And the guilt of that is on us. And yet, through your suffering, you bring us blessing. So, Father, as we take this juice, we do so in remembrance, not just of what you've done, but of where you're leading us. As you were by the you are by the Father. You are at the right hand of the Father. You will one day collect your family again in this place of glory where slander is no more. There's no more mockery. There's no more being canceled. There's no more brother against brother and mother against daughter and son against father. There's no more division in this place of peace and unity. So we take this in remembrance and in hope. And so, Father, we repent as a church. I repent. I repent for where people have reviled me and I've been quick to return a jab. We repent where people have mocked us and slandered us and we have wished the worst for them. We have done the same to them. We repent as a church. That as we do that, our evangelism has lost steam and credibility. Lord, there is no doubt in my mind of all the things I am not sure of, I am positive that as the years advance, we will become canceled 
and mocked and reviled more and more and more and more. Lord, how valuable this, this instruction is, this admonition is for us to be strong and be a blessing and be gentle and be respectful and to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have stored away, not on this planet, but in you. And Father, I pray for those who are listening, who are far from you, but trying to figure you out. And maybe they're not quite sure what to make of all of this, but Lord, I, I pray that you would pursue them, you trade their heart out. That you would give them a heart that feels, and then you would give them the confidence that you are a good God. That you would give them the gift of faith where they would believe your word, they would believe the gospel, and they would be united to this family this church, capital C, your people. And Lord, it sounds like a weird thing to pray for, but I pray for those who are considering baptism and what that means for them. Lord, that that would be a great conversation. It'd be a great conversation with those who want to be baptized. Not because it's going to make them more lovable to you. They're not going to get more acceptance or more attention from you. We know this to be true. But Lord, just as an act of obedience, just as something that they want to do in celebration of what you've done for them, the pledge of a good conscience. Lord, we're praying for a lot, but we know you're a good God and you're very thoughtful and kind. And so we move from this moment to another moment where we can sing and pray. But we thank you for being good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.